Good evening. It is good to be back with you. It's good to see you, or at least to be seen by you. I cannot wait uh, for the day where we can be back together. As I was singing down here all by my lonesome, um, I was just thinking, man, I miss, I miss y'all. I miss being with the body of Christ, which then, because of what we're talking about tonight, took my thoughts to the idea that I can't wait. I cannot wait for the day in, that my faith will become sight, and I will sing praises to God with all the saints. Not just a thousand in a room, but tens of millions and millions of people worshiping the Lord together. It's gonna be great, it's gonna be great. So thanks for joining us tonight, for worshiping with us. If you'll grab your Bibles, we're gonna get into God's word tonight. And as you grab your Bibles, uh, I wanted to ask a question. Who needs a vacation? Who needs a vacation from quarantine? Like, I know like two months ago, we would have all said, hey, how would you like six weeks at home? You can work from home. You don't have to come into the office. You know, like we, I think we'd all be like, yeah, that sounds kind of nice. A staycation, working while I'm doing it, getting, oh, okay, all right. But we've reached that point where I think we might need a vacation. I think we just might need a little break from this staycation that we're in. And, and, and if you're anything like me, one of the best parts, maybe the most anticipated part of the vacation sometimes is not actually the, the traveling and the going on vacation, right? Studies have shown that the actual, the most helpful from a mental health standpoint, the most helpful part of a vaca vacation are the days, weeks, and months leading up to the vacation, right? It's that season of anticipation. As we look forward, like we can get through a hard day because we're like, oh, okay, in two weeks, okay, in two weeks, I'll be there. I'll be on the beach. I'll be on the slopes. I'll be wherever you go. Right? It's that, it's that season of anticipation. And let me say it this way. It's really a season of hope, right? We're hoping that once we get there, we can just forget all the problems with our family, with our friends, with our work, with our whatever it may be. And we t go on a vacation because we have hope that that vacation is going to do something. Right? We have an expectation. But if we could, but let me just turn the corner really quick. Let's be honest. We're, we're kind of hope obsessed, right? Like everything in our life, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. I, I would say maybe like 90% of the decisions we make are based on hope, right? I hope that this queso is as good as they say. <laughs> I hope this movie is so exciting. I hope this vacation, I hope this job is better than my last one. I hope this relationship will do for me what I'm hoping it will do. Heck, even just everyday errands, right? Or like just eating out. Like, I, I mean, I hope this McDonald's this time will satisfy me. And every time we're like, oh, that was a poor choice. Like every time. But we go into it with hope, right? And, and that, that goes throughout our whole life. But when we talk about hope in our culture, I think we use the wrong word. Because I think the hope that we talk about is different than the way the Bible speaks of hope. Right? We talk about hope as, like, as wishful thinking. Like we, it's, it's a wishful expectation of something. Right? For vacation. I'm, I'm hoping. I'm wishing. I'm expecting this vacation to be relaxing. I'm hoping that the travel day for my vacation will go smooth. I'm wishing and expecting. But with expectation comes disappointment of unmet expectations. 
right? That's why when we're on vacation and we're getting to the end of the vacation, we start planning our next vacation. Because this one, like, oh man, okay, this was fun, but man, if we do this, this will actually fulfill the expectation that I have. This one will do the trick. But biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not wishful expectation. Biblical hope is a promise of future events that cannot and will not disappoint. Because biblical hope is in the very hands of God. Right? All of our expectations, all of our wishful thinking are in the hands of weather, of travel, of other people, of situations and circumstances that we can't control. But our biblical hope, our hope in Jesus, is under the control of the sovereign God of the universe. And we're going to look at that today. So tonight, we're going to talk about a hope that won't disappoint. Tonight, we're going to talk about a hope that will not disappoint. This is great. I'm really excited about tonight. Because I don't, I, I've been doing the, the M&M challenge, the, memorize, the marinate and memorize. And so as I've been memorizing it, it's been really fun to just sit, sit with it and marinate on it and just get into the text. And man, this is a rich, rich text. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. So if you weren't with us last week, real quick recap and, and introduction. So this letter is written from the Apostle Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was reinstated to lead the church. All right, this, that Peter. And this Peter is writing a letter from most likely Rome to the Christians in this general area, which is modern day Turkey, but it's the area of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right, so he's writing this letter. It's gonna be taken from here to this, this group and this church. And it's gonna, this letter's gonna travel over the region because in that region, there was persecution. There was suffering for the believers because what they believed was in a risen Jesus Christ, not in the Caesar of Rome. And they didn't worship the gods of Rome. They didn't worship or, or practice the cultural uh, appropriate uh, traditions. They followed Jesus. And so they were under persecution. And so Peter writes a letter of encouragement to fix their hope not on their present pain or their present situation, but on the promises of God. And so tonight, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, and we're going to look at the promises of God because they are hopeful and they will not disappoint. Let's read. Verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you have, you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
So here's my first point tonight. Comes from verse three, is that Jesus won't disappoint because Jesus gives you a new and living hope. Jesus gives you a new and a living hope. Verse three says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, when Peter considered the salvation of God, the first two, what we talked about last week, when he's thinking about, man, in, in the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood, when the whole Trinity was involved in his salvation, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see these wonderful words, in his great mercy. Stop. We learn here who God is, that he is God who acts out of mercy. In his great mercy, he has given us, right? We are saved because of his mercy, not because of our own worthiness or ability to earn it. It's out of his mercy that he has given. So many people think that God is God who withholds. Oh my goodness. God is not a God who withholds. He is a God who gives, and he gives good gifts. And the greatest gift he gave was his son. God is a God of mercy and a God who gives. And then he moves into, he has given us a new birth. You see, our first birth, our physical birth, identifies us according to our earthly family. We get our genetics, we get our ethnicity, we get our socioeconomic background, we get our geography. Everything about us is defined by who and where we're born to, right? So I was born to two people, my mother and my father, and so I look like my dad because I carry the same genes, right? So my first birth into my physical body identifies me as a Roshkalb. But what Peter's saying is in God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth, which means we have a new identity when we put our faith in Jesus. We have been born again, that's where the phrase born again Christian comes from. You see, our second birth identifies us not according to our ethnicity or our, our uh, gen genetics or our geography. It identifies us according to God's family. Right? That we have a new identity and a new citizenship where God is our father and we are now his children. And so as we live out our faith in this new birth, we gradually look more and more like our father. You see, when we're born the first time, it was into a dead hope. At the risk of being morbid here, let me just say this. When we're first born, we're born to die. That's the process of life. We're born, we live life, and then we die. And this whole coronavirus thing has really brought this to a head. Right? We're talking about money and economics and jobs and healthcare and hospital over, but really what we're talking about is death. We're afraid to die. But for the Christian, we're not afraid. We're gonna look at that today. The hope that we have. Because the hope of this life will end one day. When we put our hope in anything in this world other than Jesus, it will come to a screeching halt one day. Just like, so I talked about vacation a few minutes ago, like we, the, the anticipation. So last, last fall, 
Uh, my wife and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. And so last February, almost over a little over a year ago, I surprised her for Valentine's Day with a trip. But the trip was going to be in November. And I did that on purpose because I knew that she would spend all the months from February all the way to November anticipating and hoping and dreaming and planning. And that's part of the fun of the trip. But we came to this moment, even though the trip was awesome, and it was so fun, and we got to enjoy vacation without our children, it was just the two of us. When we got on that bus to head to the airport, there was a twinge of disappointment because it was over. Our trip was great, but it was a dead hope. It ended, it was over. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day we die is not the day things are over. That's the day they begin. Because we have a living hope. Peter writes that we have been given a new birth into a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you see the grave didn't hold him. Death did not win. Jesus was risen from the grave and we worship and follow a risen Christ, a living hope. You see, our hope is not attached to a dead savior, but a living savior. Therefore, we don't just live this life for today. We don't do that. Because we live in a culture that says, you do you, treat yourself, live for now because this is all there is. Thank God for the Christian, this is not all there is. Every day we wake up and we see a world that's broken and bitter and angry and fighting and just, mm, if this is the best, then oh my gosh. But the Bible teaches us of a promise, of a living hope, that the day we die is the day we enter into eternity with Jesus. And so if we can, for a minute, pull back out from the moment and look at eternity and say, oh, yes, let's go, right? That's where Paul said, hey, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I die, I gain Christ. I gain eternity. I gain heaven. Through trusting Christ, we have a new identity into a living hope, a hope that isn't dead but alive. Our hope doesn't rest Live and die with this life. Our hope is not in this world or of the things of this world because Jesus says, I'm alive and there's more. There's more. That's the promise. That brings me to my second point is that Jesus won't disappoint because Jesus gives you hope beyond this life. Jesus gives you hope beyond this life. Let's read in verse four and five. I'm gonna include it in, in verse three, but it says, he says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth, new identity, into a living hope because he is raised, resurrected from the grave. And into, here it is, verse four, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept, which the Greek word means to care for. It's cared for in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, not only are we promised, right, our hope is for a future resurrection through the living hope of Christ, we are also promised a future inheritance, an inheritance. Now, some of you, I don't know if you know what inheritance is, 
But I've become very familiar with inheritance over the last six months because my dad passed away a couple years ago. My mom passed away in August. And so my brother and I have had to deal with their estate. And here's the simple way to explain inheritance. What your parents have is now yours. What they own is now yours. And so in Christ, we have been given a new birth into a new family. And we are now children of God as we follow Jesus. And as children of God, we are now given an inheritance. It's not just, hey, let's go to heaven, sit on a cloud and play a harp. You gotta be kidding me. That imagery of heaven is straight from the pit of hell. Of course Satan would want you to think that's what heaven is gonna be like. No, 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 no. The Bible paints a totally different picture of what heaven is. It's where we will be with God and we will be given an inheritance. Tony Evans, a pastor down in Dallas, says it this way, our inheritance is the sum total of all God has promised us in salvation. And it also includes our rewards for faithfulness to the king and his kingdom. You see, not only is it the sum total of of God that he has promised us, it's also our reward. We see this idea of inheritance talked about all throughout the letters in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1.11, it says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Colossians 3 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In Hebrews 9.15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. Remember last week? Sprinkled with the blood of the new covenant. Right? We are forgiven and we are now his people. Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You see, our hope as a Christian is not expectation. It's not wishful thinking. It's a promise. And then in Romans 8, 17. Now we are children. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, we've been given a new birth into a living hope. Which means we are now in the family. And in Christ we have an inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. Like this is mind-blowing. We're co-heirs. My brother and I are co-heirs of our parents' stuff. And now we, because of Jesus, he has died on the cross, given us his righteousness, and not only that, he has given us co-heir status. We share in the inheritance of heaven. You see, here on earth, every earthly treasure that we value fades. Every pleasure we hope in diminishes over time. Not with the Lord His inheritance that he gives us doesn't perish, it doesn't go bad, and it doesn't fade. And it says it's kept in heaven for you through faith and shielded by God's power. Like you think about security, like you can look up, you know, the most secure places in the planet and you'll find like Area 51 because we're obsessed with aliens. That's a whole other topic, but we got to secure it right? Fort Knox, where we keep all our gold. We got to secure it. Like maybe you don't know, have any idea what I'm talking about. And so we're going to go pop culture. Like we think Ocean's Eleven, we think a vault with a huge door, with a big combination, laser beams going everywhere because it's protecting what is precious and what is 
valuable. You see, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Not by laser beams, not by sharks with laser beams on their head, none of that. It is kept in heaven for you by the power of God. He is standing watch over your inheritance. And so we know that, yeah, the stock market can go up and down. We can lose our jobs. We can lose whatever because it's not secure. But our inheritance is secure. You see, Jesus offers hope that is undisappointable. I know it's not a word, just go with it. Jesus offers hope that is undisappointable because the reality of our inheritance is unfathomable and untouchable. Right, our inheritance, like you think about what, what does that mean? What, like what is the inheritance? I don't know. I can't wrap my mind around the idea of what the heavenly realms hold. What it really means to be co-heirs with Christ. It's unfathomable but it's also untouchable. And therefore, that promise will not disappoint. And lastly, Jesus won't disappoint because he gives you hope in the midst of trials. He gives you hope in the midst of trials. Verse six through nine, follow along with me. He says, in all this, right? In all this, in your, in your new birth, into a living hope, into an inheritance that can repair, spoil, faith. in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You see, there can be joy in suffering. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Jesus gives us hope in the midst of trials. He gives us promise. He gives us promise. You see, the problem with not just our culture, but our church, because our church is in our culture, is that we don't see suffering or trials as valuable, right? Because we worship and we bow down to the God of comfort. Our typical, at least, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking too broadly here, but I know my mind automatically goes, how can I get this over with? How can I move through this valley of the shadow of death as quickly as possible? Because this is worthless. Well, if trials are worthless, then the cross is worthless as well. You see, the problem is we don't see suffering as valuable, only a problem to avoid or move through as quickly as possible. We have bought into a false gospel. We have hook, line, and sinker bought into the false gospel of me in a better situation. If I could just find myself in a different and better situation, all would be well with the world. We've bought into the false gospel of the me in a better situation theology. And that's not true. Because trials will come no matter the situation. Suffering will come, whether it's connected to our faith, which in our culture is more likely every day. But maybe it's just a hard season of life where you're suffering or going through trial. God allows it because he works in it. 
God allows it because he works in it. God allows trials to refine your faith. As, he, as uh, Peter says, to refine your faith like gold so that it will accomplish something. It will prove the genuineness of your faith and it will result in praise of Jesus when he returns. Because trials do three things that I wanna pull out of this text. Number one, trials prove your faith. You see, when things get hard, we see who sticks around. Right? Some of you guys have friends that when you've gone through a hard season, you can remember the face and the name of every single person who wasn't around and those who were close and near. Because trials sift. Right? They have come that the proven genuineness of your faith because your faith is more precious than gold, which refined by fire perishes. You will never know what you truly believe until you face a test or a trial. When you walk through that crucible, when you walk through that valley, you find what you really believe in. You find out where your security really lies. The second thing the trials do is they not only prove your faith, they develop your faith, right? That's the refining process. When, the, when, when refiners take gold and they refine it, they crank up the heat to, the top heat is like 12,000 Celsius, right? It just melts it. It melts everything and all the impurities float to the top and they wipe it away. Then they heat it back up and melt out more impurities and they melt and they wipe it away. And so this imagery that Peter gives us of being refined like gold is the development of our faith, right? Because what happened, the impurities that get brought out of us are our false and practical gods, like the things we run to and the things we actually worship day in and day out. They expose false beliefs that if I, like, like if I obey God, I'll, I'll get what I want. Like that's a false belief. Like I'll, I'll just be real honest with you. Like I've been through some, some serious uh, trials over the last three years as I've watched both my parents die. But in particular, my father, when he died three years ago, I remember the season watching him get sicker and sicker. And what that season of trial exposed in me, the impurity of my faith that was exposed was my entitlement. You see, I didn't know, but I was through a trial exposed to the fact that I was an entitled believer. God. I've done this for you, and I've done this for you, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done this, and I've done this. You need to do this for me. I deserve it. Like, I felt that. I prayed that. I said those words. And so in that trial, God developed my faith by drawing out the impurities that were exposed in that season. Man, trials are good. They're not fun, but they're good, and they accomplish much. So they prove your faith, they develop your faith, and then thirdly, they glorify God. They glorify God. Because when everything else is taken away and God is all that we have left, he has to be the center. He has to be what is lifted up. You see, as Christians, if we have a hope in something greater than this world, trials will display that. But when our hope, when our joy, when our contentment and, and whatever you want to throw in there, when they're taken away and we freak out, then it shows that our faith 
is in something else. But we walk through trials and we're hopeful and joyful, not saying happy, but we're hopeful that God is working even through this, right? The broken hearts, the job loss, the death of a loved one, whatever it may be, the loneliness, that as we walk through this season, I can find joy in it because I know God is working in it. It's Romans 8, 28 and 29 all over again. God works all things out for those who love him and called according to his purpose, that they might be conformed to the image of his son. You see, our ability to cope with the present trials is uniquely tied to our understanding of God's present ability to work in the midst of it. Let me say that again. Our ability to cope with the present trials is tied to our understanding of God's present ability to work in it. We can have joy in the midst of trials, but I don't want to skip over one particular word that Peter shares. He says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved. You've suffered grief by various trials. Guys, Christianity is not a, a faith that just says, hey, put on a happy face and pretend like it doesn't exist. No, Peter's saying grieve, that you have had to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. He's not saying we ignore the reality of grief, whether that's loneliness or job loss or a loved one is sick, whatever it may Like we can grieve these things, but we grieve with hope that God is working through this. He's working in it and he's working in me. We can have joy in the midst of trials because God is using them to prove, develop, and refine our faith. But the refining is never without hope. So that when Jesus Christ is revealed, one day it will result in praise and glory and honor and a voice saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. And so our hope in Jesus won't disappoint. We've been given a new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that one day we will grasp and it will be ours that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven by God's power. It is secure. And our hope in Jesus won't disappoint because even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of suffering, God is working. And he is going to accomplish. Guys, I don't know, I'll just be honest. I've grown more in the valleys of my life than any mountaintop, ever. God uses the valleys and he uses the trials. So what do we do with this? Well, I guess the question is, are you willing to reorient your hope from an expectation, a wishful expectation of something that you have no control over Right? Are we willing to transfer and reorient our hope from wishful expectation to a promise held in heaven for you by the power of God? That before time, in his foreknowledge, he chose you and through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You see, God has ordained this and it's a promise controlled entirely by him. So are you willing to reorient your hope, replacing wishful expectations with the promises of God? Because let's be honest, we put our hope in a lot of things. We're obsessed with hope. 
but maybe you don't know what your hope is in. Well, let me give you a sentence that I want to ask you to finish. Write this down. If I just had X, I'd be happy, fulfilled, or content. If I just had this, whatever X is, whatever this is in that sentence is your hope and your functional God. It's what you look to for joy. It's what you look to for happiness. It's what you look to for fulfillment. And what I'm telling you tonight and what I believe the apostle Peter was telling the early church is that anything other than Jesus is a dead hope. You may get it, but it won't last. You may get it, and then you may lose it. You may get it, but it will let you down. Or may you may never get it and live longingly and frustrated but I want to tell you tonight, young adults, that putting your faith in Jesus is the best decision you will ever make because Jesus does not disappoint. He fulfills the promises that he has given. The promise of a living hope, guaranteed and secure and purposeful in your life for today and for the day to come. So, that's the so what tonight. Are you willing to reorient your hope? Maybe write down on a piece of paper or in your Bible, what is it, what's the X for you? What's that thing that you've been looking to with wishful expectation that you need to take off the throne of your life and put Jesus, the living hope, on the throne and trust him that even in the trials, that even in the suffering, he is working for your good and for God's glory because we are obsessed with hope. But here's the good news. We serve and worship a God who is obsessed with hope. You see, it is hardwired in us to be obsessed with hope because we share that family trait because God is obsessed with, obsessed with hope but he gives promises that he himself has complete control over to see out. Our faith, Christianity, is a hope-centered faith. One where our hope doesn't rest on our ability to fulfill a standard, but on a Savior that has already fulfilled it. And not only that, he transfers it to you and me. That's our hope. A promise fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when he said it is finished on the cross, he said the promise is fulfilled. You have a living hope in Jesus. And it will not disappoint. I love that. Because everything in this world that I put my hope in will disappoint, or it will end, or it will diminish, or it will fade. But the promises of God's word through Jesus Christ will never perish, spoil, or fade. So as we go into 120 seconds, we're just gonna leave this question on the screen. Are you willing to reorient your hope? And what I would ask you to do in the next 120 seconds, or maybe you just turn us off and you just fall in the face of your living room or wherever you may be, in your car, and you would take that thing, the X, and confess it to the Lord. Say, Jesus, I run to this 
and I have a wishful expectation of this and it controls my life and I confess that to you and then you repent from it, say, God, help me turn your eyes to Jesus and say, follow, help me follow you. Help me replace my hope, my wishful expectation with the promise of your word that you are working through it. And so our 120 seconds is just a time of prayer that you would seek the face of the Lord, that you would confess and that you would repent and then celebrate the hope we have in Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you for this night, Lord. Thank you for just the ability to do this, even though we're not together. God, I pray for anyone sitting there in their living room, in their car, wherever they may be, God, that you would meet with them. And then maybe for the first time, God, they would understand the difference between a worldly hope and a biblical hope. One that is wishful and one that is promised. God, help us. God, we are weak. Help us to trust you. Help us to put our faith and our hope in you and not in the things of this world. We praise things in your name. Amen.